coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. There's an inherent essential difference between an entrepreneur and their staff. And again, that doesn't mean the staff might not one day go out and be on their own. There's an essential difference in the way they think, in the way they look at the business and the way they treat it. And the person who started it is never going to look about it and feel the same way about it as a person they're bringing in. Do you want to learn the tricks the top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help. Lead to Succeed picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, Episode 32. This episode's interesting fact is, according to podcastinginsights.com, 44% of the U.S. population has listened to a podcast, and 80% of people listen to all or most of each podcast. I am sure that with today's guest, folks listening to this episode are not going to stop until the very end. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Esty Rand. Esty has been helping small, medium, and large businesses improve on minimal budgets for over 15 years. After spending many years finding fulfillment in the non-for-profit industry, Esty founded Strand Consulting to bring her skills of doing more with less to smart business owners. Esty enjoys helping others reach their earning potential, maximizing themselves, their time, and of course, their profits. Now a mom of five and coach to multi-million dollar business owners, Esty recently launched the Business Breakthrough Podcast, helping to make business success relatable and attainable to every human. Esty, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've really looked forward to this conversation. Thank you. And I as well. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, there are a lot of things about your bio that really resonate, including your time in the non-for-profit space. And hopefully we'll get into that, as well as many of the other things that you're doing. And so I want to jump in, if I can, to something that I just read in your bio about helping clients to make specifically the most of their manpower and budgets. And I will just share before I jump into the question, that I actually just produced an ebook specific to this point. I call it EPIC, which stands for uh, four different areas, if you will, on how an understaffed leader can help their team over-deliver. And I want to get your take on this. So how, how do you help people? And specifically, why did you choose to focus on uh, this area of people who are struggling to do more with less? Sure. So I really started out as just this do-gooder who wanted to save the world. Uh, That's how I ended up in nonprofit to begin with. And as you know, and I'm sure all your listeners know, in nonprofit, you're always working with a skeleton staff and a skeleton budget. Okay. I won't say always. I will say almost always. The essence I have found, and I spent over 10 years in the nonprofit world at, at various places, is how do you do more with less, right? We're, we're taking other people's money and we're on this mission to do as much as we can with it. And with that passion, that's kind of the skill set that I generated. We were, when I worked in Nerla Elif, which I think now goes by Olami, more or less, we were working, I would say in a corporation, we probably would have had a team of 10 to 15 people. We were three people. Wow. That's quite the quite quite the disparity. So tell me specifically then, like when you're talking to someone and they're talking to you specifically about this issue, what is your approach? How do you help people do more with less? Sure. So I listen a lot. That's definitely the first thing I do. When you're trying to do more with less, I find you have to be super tailored. 
it's easy to give a one size fits all solution when you can throw money at it. Like, okay, yeah. So we're going to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that, and a little of that, you know, let's say in a marketing strategy, we're, we're going to, you know, cover all the bases. We'll do print and we'll do outdoor and we'll do online and we'll do social media and we'll do PPC, which is pay-per-click. And, you know, we'll cover all the bases. If I have money to throw at it, hopefully something's going to stick. And when I don't have money, I've got to only do the things that are going to really work. And in staffing, it's the same. If I've got a big budget, if I can get a big team, so I hope that at least 30, 40% of my team is functioning highly and the rest of them are kind of picking up what's left. And if I'm a small business or a nonprofit, I need every single person to be doing exactly what I need them to do in the best way possible. So I listen and I've actually created a system that I teach my clients called the hiring matrix. Do you want to hear it? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So it's kind of like a three by three matrix, right? If you think about it, um, not matrix like the movie, like a, a grid. Yeah. So yes, it's a I'm three by you. three grid. Okay. So you have three stages in hiring. First stage is, and this incredibly so many people never do, you've got to assess the need. What is the lack? Why are you hiring? So many people are just like, oh, I'm just overwhelmed. I need help. That That's not called assessing the need. Be really clear what do I need help with? Is it just a frustration on my part? Is it a lack of capability? What is the piece that I'm missing? And be as specific as possible. What role is this person going to fill in my company, business, organization? What tasks am I going to need them to do? What, what is my missing piece? That's step one. And that step alone sets you up for so much success. And so few people do it, which always blows my mind. So that's one. Step two, and so there's three parts in each one, right? So it's a three by three. So step one has three parts. Assess the lack, the role, and the tasks. What am I missing? What role is this person? Are they going to be my assistant? Are they going to be my underling? Do I need a partner? Do I need a salesperson? Like what kind of a role are we filling? And exactly what things do I expect this person to do? Next stage is I go out and look for them. And this is the hiring process. And this is where most people start and end. And they usually only focus on one of the three metrics. So there's... Skills and experience, that's usually what most people focus on. Like, okay, I need someone to do sales. Let's find someone who knows how to do sales. I need someone to do bookkeeping. Let's find someone who can work with numbers. But there's actually three parts. There's skills and experience. There's personality profile, which is so critical. And there's actually life stage. Now, I spoke to a, an HR person at Halston, and she told me something that blew my mind and has saved so many of my clients for small businesses. And this is in America. I don't know where your listener base is, but America has the strictest laws on discrimination for small businesses who have a staff of less than 50 people. Some of the quote unquote discrimination laws don't apply because a small business lives and dies on its people. So you can't take someone who's about to give birth. You probably can't take someone who's going through a messy divorce right now. Now, you can tell me I'm evil, um, but I don't think it's good for anybody to go into a job that's not the right fit and not the right time for them. And so life stage, like I have one of my clients now, I told him he is looking for a mom who's returning to the workforce. That's who he's looking for. That's the life stage. He needs someone to just kind of sit in the office who wants the flex time, but is not going to disappear on him, who's not really looking... Again, I'm stereotyping terribly. Please don't hate me, everybody. Um, but there is something to it. 
understanding the life stage someone's at, understanding what it means, you know, a guy who's just out of college, who's on the rise versus, you know, a teenager who's still in school versus a mom at any stage in her momness. Okay. And each one comes with different benefits and detriments in terms of employment and the personality profile, which so many people ignore. There are salespeople who are really technical. There are salespeople who are really personable. So just saying I need someone to do sales, but ignoring the type of person they are doesn't work at all. Or saying I need a secretary. Okay. Are are all secretaries created the same? No, they are not. And the type of person they are. So that's really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of, of gold to mine there, Esty, and I uh, would love to pick it apart just sure. a little bit. But it sounds to me, first and foremost, that you are providing a service not only once people have their team and how do they maximize, let's say, for example, you're doing a skills gap analysis, you know, what are the what are the skills that we need and what are the skills that we presently have and how do we align the two, which is what I talk about, for example, in that epic mm-hmm. ebook of mine. But it sounds like you're, you're really starting people at the very front end of their process to identify the skills that folks need to have, the profile of the individual, you know, where they are both personally and professionally, so that they could really piece together the optimal staff that they need in order to achieve their best results despite whatever financial limitations they might have. Totally. And I've done this with businesses that have existing staff as well. Because again, when you're bringing someone on, so it's you, you have an advantage. What if you already have people on board? Then what do we do? So we'll review. Anyways, we'll almost go back to the beginning and say, listen, you have seven people, you have 20 people, you have three people. Did you ever set this up to begin with? And we'll go backwards. We'll say, listen, what is the need that you needed them to fill? We'll, we'll work on this even once people are in the door and then we'll assess them. Are they actually a good fit for it? Where is the mismatch? And then part three, which is the onboarding and the integration, getting them to actually be part of your staff. So many small business owners don't train. Everything lives in their head, right? This is their baby. This is their life. It's all in their head. And they bring someone in and they just like expect them to figure it out. And they're like, they might give them some orders and be like, do this. You know, and again, they've checked their skills and experience. So this guy should know how to do sales, bookkeeping, secretarial, whatever it is, but it's all in their head. Sure. And so the three steps there are what I call push, pull, and assess, right? Push is where I give over, not being pushy or pushing them around. Push is where I push out of myself all the information that's in my head. Whether we do like a scheduled daily sit down, weekly, whether we write it down, we build a knowledge base, whatever it is. Again, I, my clientele, I take all the people that the other companies don't want uh, because they're too small. And again, I, some of my clients are multi-million dollar they run multi-million dollar business. They're profiting in the millions, but they're still running, you know, with seven, 10, 15, 20 people. They're running this massive operation with a small staff on a smaller scale and their budgets are still not massive um, because every, every extra dollar goes in their pocket. And uh, I love the little guys. And so the little guys, you know, they've built this thing, it's all in their head and now they need help. And so push, get it out of your head and tell this new person what you expect of them, how you expect it to look, make it clear and then pull. Now, this is, again, just like in the role definition and, you know, ignoring personality profile in level two, so many people forget to pull. Ask your new hire, did they understand you? Oh my gosh. If I, and I'm sure you know this, Naftali, because you work with, with a similar clientele sometimes. How many bosses give something over to their staff person, new or, or veteran, and are just like, here, take care of this. And the person has not a clue what was asked of them. Not a clue. 
Yeah, well, I would add to that. First of all, they have to have that clarity. That's great. You want to deep, you know, uh, dig down, so to speak, and make sure that they understand exactly, and ideally, to restate in their, in you know, in their own words, what exactly it is that you're asking them to do. Uh, but then you want to make sure that they have a plan by which to implement it. Exactly. Yeah, both of those pieces are really critical. Exactly. Paul, do they understand you? And can they do this? Do they have what they need to make it happen? You know, how many times have the boss said, like, can you take care of this? And the employee's like, uh, yeah. And they they didn't really even understand what it was and they totally can't. And then, you know, the next day, three days later, two hours later, the boss comes back. He's like, is it done? And the person's like, you know, I didn't have the password. They're like, why don't you just ask? Yeah. So what's the third one? Pull, um, push. I'm sorry. Assess. Push, pull. And what's the third? Assess. Assess. Go ahead. Set up regular assessment times. Um, and this is part of what I, I teach as my self-firing system. So many people also get stuck with the wrong hires and they, they can't fire them, you know, and sometimes these people have been working there just a few months and sometimes years. And they're just, these business owners are stuck. They, they can't bring themselves to let them go because they've never told them they were doing a bad job. They've never mm-hmm. told them what mm-hmm. they messed up. And so having a regular assessment, and again, if you haven't set it up yet, so I've had business owners, you know, institute this after they've been having their staff working with them for years. Tell them, listen, I'm doing something new. We're going to meet once a week, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is. And we're going to review, how's it going for both of us? What are your thoughts about what's going well, what's not going as well, and how we can solve it? What are my thoughts about what's going well, what's not going as well, and how we can solve it? And then there's no defensiveness. I'm not coming at you with an attack or a criticism. This is our regularly scheduled, let's make this the best place to work meeting. You know, Esty, I think that lead to Succeed Nation as we're listening to this, you know, on the one hand, this is obviously great stuff, uh, certainly worthwhile to go really deep on it. Yet on the other hand, it seems intuitively, it seems so, so basic in other words, and I'm not trying to be, you know, in any way diminish what you're saying. I think it's great. But my point is that, you know, sometimes it seems like it should be so obvious. I need to tell you what you need. You need to ask, you know, questions. And of course, make sure that I, that you're clear. And then you need to assess the work that that's getting done. And yet so many people aren't doing it. And I guess my question to you is, why do you think that that's the case? In other words, why is it that bosses are making these assumptions or just not going through these basic processes to ensure that they're getting the most out of their people? I think as humans, we naturally look at other people and think they're like us. And inherently, there's an inherent essential difference between an entrepreneur and their staff. And again, that doesn't mean the staff might not one day go out and be on their own. There's an essential difference in the way they think, in the way they look at the business, in the way they treat it. And the person who started it is never going to look about it and feel the same way about it as a person they're bringing in. And so when the entrepreneur looks at these people and they just think they're going to work the same way they did, they kind of think that they're going to understand what's in their head because they do. And they think they're just going to ask questions the way that they ask questions. They're going to be able to do things the way they do them. And they don't think, and and I know it sounds simple and I, I take that as a compliment actually, because I worked very hard to simplify it, to make it into something that's easy and memorable and, and easy to follow. I think that that's a big part of it. We just, we think that people are like us and we expect them to understand what we understand and do what we're going to do without, without working it out with them. That's interesting. You know, it reminds me, I was listening a little while back to one of Michael Gerber's uh, E-Myth books. I remember it might've been the original even. And, uh, you know, the idea that we transition from technician to manager to eventually leader entrepreneur, uh, you know, there are, there are steps along the way. And sometimes, like you said, some folks make that leap they start their own business and perhaps in their mind, 
uh, they're still thinking about it either from a technician standpoint or they're just assuming, like you indicated, uh, that others get it the way that they get it. And sometimes we need to take a half a step back and say, are our people really with us? Are they committed the way that we need them to be? But more importantly, are they informed and they know specifically what it is that they that they need to do. So that actually leads into another question that I have for you. And that is, what tools do you advise your clients to work with specifically to help their people get really clear and make sure that they're making proper progress on their goals? Uh, so you mean like tech tools? Uh, it could be, it could be goal setting related. Anything that you feel that people, if they had it in their toolkit, uh, would be able to not only clarify what it is that they want from their people and also make sure that the work is getting done in an effective way. Okay. So I'll say one of the, it's a book, it's not a tool, but the One Minute Manager by Spencer Johnson, I think is life-changing for so many small business owners. Um, The understanding that your people in essence need to manage themselves um, with clear expectations so that it's kind of like a tool because it's like a management outlook, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of tech tools, so I work with a primarily virtual team. I actually recently hired someone to work with me in office and I was like, uh, no, <laughs> go, go somewhere else. <laughs> I need my space. Um, and I have like between 10 and 15 people that I'm working with at any given time on my team, but they all either have their own offices here in LA. Some of them are on the East coast some they're in Israel. We're tri-coastal East, West and Mediterranean. So they're all over. And uh, so many businesses today are managing a virtual team. And if you are, and even if you're not, some amazing tools out there are Trello. Trello is basically just a computerized version of the Kanban board system. Just like a bunch of, uh, imagine just a bunch of lists. That's really essentially what it is, but the lists allow you to move things back and forth, to keep track of progress, to add notes. Trello is a great free tool. Another one that we use that I like a lot is uh, we use WhatsApp. You're going to laugh at me. Um, but I've used WhatsApp with myself and a lot of my clients, creating WhatsApp groups, creating WhatsApp chats with yourself. I'm not going to laugh, by the way, because I um, I actually visited. I'm going I'm to use the Hebrew term for a second. I, I got a lot of nachas, which I guess you would say would be sort of pleasure or pride uh, in visiting when I was in Chicago last time. I, I used to live and teach there. And uh, one of my former students has developed a tremendous real estate portfolio. And he actually has a a series of ongoing, I don't know exactly how he set it up, but all through WhatsApp. And he has a massive screen where he's able to see all these various conversations. People are sharing pictures. People are sharing what they did. These are people who are managing real estate properties. And so I've seen WhatsApp used in a totally different way than I personally use it. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. It, it's, an, it's an incredible tool and its ability to cross time zones and zip codes and boundaries, the way you can share audio, video, images. It really, we use it a lot. We use it with group client projects when I'm, I'm combining a team. You know, for example, I've got my clients in New York, the social media ghoster that's working on the project is in Israel and I'm in LA. So we're constantly in three time zones. It's just a three-way chat, but I don't, we couldn't manage the project without it. And because everyone has it. So again, a lot of my clients use Slack. A lot of the bigger businesses that I work with will also use Slack. And Slack is amazing because you can custom code it. One of my clients, what we did was we built a custom knowledge base in Slack. So when you, you can ask Slack a question and it will answer you. 
instead of having a human have to answer you. So that's a very cool tool as your business grows um, to create this kind of automation and a more sophisticated tool. But at its basic level, I find WhatsApp amazing, Trello is amazing. I like Google Keep a lot. I store a lot of things there and share it. We use Dropbox and Google Drive. The technology, when I was working um, in Nerla LF way back when, file sharing was still in its infancy. I don't even know if Dropbox was around. And I was my database person that was working for me was working from home. And uh, I was looking all over for some kind of file sharing thing, which now is just like Dropbox Drive, you know, 10 million other options. There was something called folder share which was then bought by Microsoft um, and renamed something else. I don't even remember. Similar to what Yahoo Briefcase used to be, but much better. Anyways, I digress. File sharing tools are amazing. Most people don't know how Dropbox works, but you actually can just install the thing. So many people use Dropbox wrong. You upload stuff to it online. That's the backup. You can have Dropbox on your computer that the folder you actually drop things into, whether Mac or PC or mobile, it doesn't matter. The folder lives on your device. And as you work on the file and as you save it, it automatically syncs to everybody else who's shared on it. So these kinds of tools are incredible time savers. Yeah, absolutely. These are fantastic tools. And um, you've given us quite a bit in terms of how to manage things both locally as well as virtually. And I hope everybody's uh, absorbing these various ideas and these great hacks. Let me ask you this question. So we're obviously here in the business of trying to help people who have small teams. And invariably, in the process of trying to save some money, we make mistakes. And we've all made mistakes. And, you know, try to save, what is it, uh, penny wise, pound foolish. And, you know, think of any metaphor, any uh, colloquialism that comes to mind. What would you say is the biggest mistake, Esty, that you have seen either your client or somebody else and perhaps even yourself uh, in, in trying to save some money that ultimately really backfired on them? Ooh, the biggest mistake. There are so or a many. common one or a common one. <laughs> let's, let's, let's make it a little bit more relevant, couple. I suppose. I have a couple. Um, you know what? I'm going to throw out one that people might not realize because I think everyone knows the Pennywise pound foolish one where, you know, I skimp on something and I, I pay too little for it and then I end up having to pay much more to fix it. I think that everybody knows. I'm going to put out one that people might not think about, which is cutting out the important stuff that was important to you because you feel like you can't afford it. Now, I don't care if this is your daily Starbucks. I don't care if this is, you know, you really wanted to put an ad in a certain paper and you did not care that your marketing person told you it wasn't worth the money. You wanted to see your name in print in that paper. And I broke it up on purpose. There's this like internal, like, I want this. And we ignore it sometimes because we feel like I can't do it and I can't afford it. And it comes back to bite you so bad because the resentment and the feeling of not having overtakes you and you end up wasting money somewhere else. Then you ended up spending the money and you still didn't get what you wanted. Hmm. Interesting. The title of the book is not coming to me at the moment, but as you were speaking, and maybe I can find it while I'm talking to you about it, uh, the psychology there that you just mentioned is fascinating because oftentimes we think that our decisions are one and done. I'll save money over here, whether I think it's a great decision or something I'm really proud of, so to speak, or something I'm just doing because I feel I need to financially or otherwise. And we feel that here's the decision, here's the outcome, and I'm done. But the reality is oftentimes there's a psychological back piece to all of it. And what I, I guess what I'm getting at is that we don't realize that if we deprive ourselves potentially in one area, we may come back and try to undo it or compensate for it in a different way, which has a longer term negative impact. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah. And, and I've seen it so many times. I've seen people who have, you know, they really wanted a certain kind of website, for example, but they didn't, they didn't think they could pay for it. And so they got some kind of cheapy one and then it was just horrible. So they spent, right? So that's the common, right? Pennywise, pound foolish. They've come out with a horrible one, but now they feel so bad about themselves and they feel so bad about this site that they go and spend 20K on a super amazing one. They borrow money because they're like, oh, this was terrible. Had they just made peace with what they wanted the first time, they probably could have spent maybe 2003 on a very decent nice one. And instead, because they deprived themselves of what they wanted, thinking they couldn't afford it, they go all out to kind of try mm-hmm. and fix it. Interesting. And it's yeah. unnecessary, but it, it comes, I think, from that feeling of, I can't have what I really need. Now, again, if you really don't have the money, if you can make peace with it, work out a compromise, work out a solution, figure out a payment plan, a barter. Again, when I work primarily with service-based businesses. Now I consider Amazon sellers to be service-based. So it's a pretty broad definition. It's, it's where your business is essentially providing service, even if there's product involved. There are so many opportunities for barter of services if you can't afford something for your business. Yeah, There are so many opportunities to get things cheaper or discounted to wait, but to look at it and say, oh, I got to save the money. I can't do this. I can't get that. And, and then to suffer for it and, and have it build up until you totally spend more than you needed to. I've seen that more often than I would have thought. Yeah, that's interesting. I found the book, by the way, while you were speaking, and I'm pretty sure in there, the, the psychology in this book is fascinating. It's called The Willpower Instinct. And the author is Kelly, I like to pronounce it correctly, I hope, but it's Kelly McGonigal, I think, or McGonigal, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but The Willpower Instinct is the name of the book, and it's fascinating. I think it really speaks to uh, what you're describing, Esty. And sometimes we, like you said, have a, a, a short uh, narrow view initially in order to try to save money or some other consideration. And then we're just enticed to go bigger down the road where we could have just done it right the first time. It's a challenge. You know, we have so many things we want to do both professionally as well as personally. You have, uh, you've been blessed with a large family, as we've talked about before, five children, and yet you've got this robust business with clients and virtual assistants all over the world. How do you create the proper balance and boundaries that allows you to achieve whatever you want, Esty, both professionally as well as personally? So I don't know if I get to achieve whatever I want, but um, (laughs) definitely try. I would say that the tool that I think works for me the most personally is I'm very compartmentalized. I'm very organized. So I have... uh, I did pick up on that, by the way. But that I'm very organized. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just the way you're speaking, which is fantastic. These ideas rolling off the tongue, that clearly tells me that you know what you're talking about, which is great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm this very odd combination of like technical and creative. All my early businesses were in the creative field. My degree is in marketing with a minor in graphics and communications. So it's, it's this odd left, right brain thing, but it, it's fun. It works well for me in my business. So that combination of kind of creative solutions and a lot of organization. And I will say, I won't say constantly, but I will say at least once a day, I have to make a decision in my priorities. And and this again is a system that I've built that I teach my clients. We have like a work-life balance program that we put clients through when they want to. Obviously, we don't force them through it. And it takes a month, but we kind of assess starting again in tiers what are the most important areas in your life? And so for me, I've I very firmly have decided that it's family and children first. I have seen 
too many people, friends and clients and colleagues who, you know, they put their family aside temporarily, quote unquote, to build their business, to build their career, but their family's not there when they come back. And my business has grown slower to be totally transparent. My business has grown way slower than I could have grown it because I have dedicated so much time to my family. And that's hard for me. But when I come home at the end of the day, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to say a story that I think illustrates this so well. You mentioned that I launched my podcast a little while ago. Um, episode 7 I think just went up this morning, although I recorded 11 yesterday with Steve Sims. Just if you know who he is, it was so cool. Anyways, I digress. And I was so excited for this and I'm working on it for months and we built a new site and I was putting in 16 hour days, which meant like I would get into the office at 8.30, I'd get home at let's say five and then at eight o'clock I'd sit down again until two in the morning. It was totally insane. This period of a few months where I was doing all my regular work and putting this in and I'm building and I'm building and I'm networking and I'm meeting people and it's like, wow, exciting. And the day before the podcast went live, my phone had a hardware crash. I didn't even drop it. It just died. This is so God. I'm a big God believer. And I'm like, really? Really? Like, is this a message? (laughs) Like, I don't get it. I could not tell anybody. My WhatsApp was broke. I couldn't access emails. I got a temp phone. It wouldn't work. My podcast went live. All the tech like went through and I couldn't share it with anyone. All of my hard work. And you know what? For an entire, I think 24 hours from when my phone crashed until I could replace it, I was unreachable. You could only find me by email. Most people don't bother. They, they call, they text, they WhatsApp me first. You couldn't find me. And you know what? No one went looking. None of my clients or my colleagues, I think my staff was a little concerned, but like no one was hunting for me. And I came home that day feeling like, wow, okay, if I disappear, okay, people will eventually notice. And I walk in the door and all my kids are like, mommy, yay. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. If I didn't come home, they would really miss me and they would really look for me. And it was such a reality check. And especially after putting in so much work time for those few months, this is what's important. This is what lasts. I'm the most important person in their life. And I, I do constantly have to, to remember that it's so much easier to work than to parent, (laughs) than to be married, than all these things. And anyone who tells you otherwise is just lying. Okay. Work is easier. You know, Esti, I'm, I'm tempted to let you off the hook because we always ask our guests before they get off the, the conversation to leave us with one final life lesson. But that was really just so powerful. And uh, I think for that alone, our conversation was worthwhile today. So thank you so very much for leaving this segment on such a high. And we're going to now transition to rapid fire, which is a fun way with which we can get to know you even a little bit better. So tell us, since there's so much information out there, but I've been curious myself, you're in marketing. What's the best time to send an email to clients or to your list? Um, so 9 a.m., 12 p.m. The truth is, it actually depends on who your list is and what you're sending. That's the truth. So if it's business services, then I would say 9 a.m. or 12 p.m. Somewhere around that time of day is a good one. And 10 and 1 are, are pretty similar. That's fine. And not Monday, please. Everyone gets back to work Monday, at least in America. And they're just like a huge amount of emails. Not Monday. If you're selling something, let's say fashion or clothing, I wouldn't send it during the workday. I'd send it in the evening. Most people will pick up their phones and their emails again in the evening times. Something that's social, something that's more personal and not business related, I'd probably do around 7 p.m. A primary benefit of virtual assistance other than managing costs. Ah... 
cheaper office space. Okay. Favorite drink at Starbucks? You know, I don't do coffee. I get hot cocoa. I think they sell other things there as well. Though in all honesty, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of the uh, classic Starbucks, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, customers, for lack of a better term, but um, I hear. Okay. And then the last one, if you could print a message on a large billboard right outside of LAX, what would it say? <sighs> Don't ever be anyone other than yourself. You are awesome. What you bring to the world is unique and beautiful. Don't try to be anyone else. That is great, especially right outside of Hollywood. I love that. It really resonates. Okay, so tell us a little bit more, Esty. Where can people find you? How can they connect with you, learn more about your work? Sure. So the podcast, you can check out on sdran.com. Uh, you can also just search iTunes, Stitcher, any of your podcast apps for a business breakthrough with SD Rand and subscribe because that makes me happy. Uh, social media, I basically hang out on LinkedIn. That's where I do the most posting. I'm also on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter, never there. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, but not there that much either these days. And if you want to see what the company does, you can go to strandconsulting.net. You can see the company services, a little bit more about what we do and our team, who is virtual. And uh, I guess that's it. You can shoot me an email if you want. I'm really hard to lose. If you type my name in online, do this on purpose. I own like the first two pages of Google. Really hard to lose. Just spell it E-S-T-I-E. Then you're good. Got it. Okay. We will find you there. And finally, Esty, before we let you go, that final life lesson that we talked about before. That the person that you are most important to in the world is your family. And again, if you don't have a family, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. So your friends, your family, everyone's got someone. Don't get lost in the business, in the work, in the professionalism. It's an amazing ego burster. It's so much easier than personal life. But at the end of the day, the people who are going to miss you when your phone dies, it's your husband and your kids. Beautiful. Today's leadership quote is from Ken Kesey. You don't lead by pointing and telling people someplace to go. You lead by going to that place and making a case. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you could lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to head over to impactfulcoaching.com where you can sign up for our blog, download a free leadership ebook, and so much more. Esty, thank you so very much again for coming on the show. I know I personally have learned a ton from you, and I certainly look forward to connecting with you further and deepening that relationship. And uh, once again, on behalf of all of us at Lead to Succeed, thanks so very much for being on the show with us today. You're so welcome. It was a pleasure and really fun. Good questions. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again for listening and have a great day. 